Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. Perhaps, apropos of nothing, I tell you this little story that preceded my recording this episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. As a retired person, I have, for some time, made up my own schedule. I go to bed when I want to, I get up when I want to, unless I have a very specific appointment. And that has actually been one of the things I most enjoy about retirement. Every once in a while, I'll help out in the church office, and for the last couple of weeks, and probably for the next few weeks, I'll be helping out in my church office again. And that's been an afternoon project from, you know, like 1 o'clock to 5 o'clock, or maybe a little earlier in the day, depending on the need. And I've discovered a couple of things. One is I really don't like being on a schedule where I have several hours committed to something, the same thing every day, and that I have to be someplace at a particular time. I'm good at it, always have been, but I realize now that I've gotten used to not doing it. And two, I am maybe not as talented as I used to be in handling office matters, or put it this way, I've been away from it so long that my old OCD kicking in makes me constantly anxious that I'm going to make a mistake, and then I make a mistake. So, here's Saturday, and I said to myself, great, I have the whole day to do the things that I need to, in particular this podcast, and I got up late, as I like to do. I was sitting looking at my notes for this podcast when I saw a text from my pastor that said, There's a problem with the intercessions for this week, which is the fourth Sunday in Ordinary Time. Now, by the way, this really wasn't a tough task because the other secretary, the church secretary, had left me a pattern in a folder which basically had all this material. So what could the problem be? The problem was that I had put into the books the different things for the priest to use at Mass, I had put in the fifth Sunday of Ordinary Time. Now, it didn't take too long to resolve the problem. I ran over to the church, and I corrected my mistake, I think. And then I came home, made a cup of coffee, looked through my mail, and here I am, back at my dining room table, talking to you. I think I feel one of two things about all of this. The less dramatic... The best laid plans of mice and men, off the gang of glee, as our baron said, which is, you know, things don't go the way you usually expect them to go. Or, at this stage of my life, which finds me a bit or a lot older than I was when I was a, quote, working person, I'm not as talented as I used to be, and that makes me a little nervous, again, in my OCD. But, either way, it worked out, and so... Today, I'm going to talk about whether or not our times are really worse than they've ever been, and whether they are or not, what does that mean in terms of us as spiritual Catholic beings? When I was looking for the quote last week in Matthew from the Sermon on the Mount, in which our Lord exhorts us lovingly not to be anxious, not to engage in solicitude about what might happen to us, because He's always there with us, always to catch us. I happened upon the early pages of the Douay-Rims Bible. Something caught my eye. 
Well, two things caught my eye. First, there was the publication date of the Bible. The New Testament version of the Douay Rams was first published in the year 1582, the 16th century, and the Old was published in 1609 or is that 1607? I think it's 1607, the very early 17th century. It turns out that this translation from the Latin Vulgate predates, by quite a few years, the King James Version, which is the primary Bible used by our Protestant brothers and sisters, certainly of the Anglican denomination. And like all translations, it has been subject to praise and critique. Remember, that the 1500s was when there were divisive events in Christianity, specifically Martin Luther posting his 95 theses because of the indulgence and other very real scandals of the Catholic Church, which scandals because of the human hands that administer God's body. The Church is inevitable and is just as much existent in any other faith out there. Why? because we're human beings and we are sinful. Now, Luther, of course, was, as people often forget, an Augustinian monk. Now, followed later, not so far later after, by the king's great matter, that is, Henry VIII's desire to divorce Catherine of Aragon, and marry Anne Boleyn, which the pope declined to allow. Now, there wasn't just angry debate during these periods, although there was that too. Both, quote, sides, I use a quote because the only side ought to be God's side, and we creatures regularly muck that up. Well, anyway, both sides of these debates really did their shares of, quote, canceling the other. And canceling here was a very dramatic affair. Parenthetically, one of the things that really struck me when I was in the UK in 2013 and exploring places like Westminster Abbey was the feeling of the Catholicity of these places. I knew the history generally that they were transformed by King Henry and our brethren, the Anglicans, but oh, how comfortable and familiar was the feel of the place. And clearly there was a legacy of Catholicism I remember being really impressed by the shrine of the Catholic saint, Edward the Confessor, with the inscription honoring him from the 16th century, Edward, hero and saint, preeminent in all the praises of his virtues, dying in 1065, he ascends above the heavens, lift up your hearts. This was published by John Feckenham, the abbot at the time. It's hard to imagine the battles, the cancellations, physical cancellations imposed by passionate human beings on one another, the fear, the isolation, people of otherwise goodwill felt towards one another. So everything is an action and a reaction, or a reformation and a counter-reformation. And as part of, I guess, what would be called the counter-reformation, there was a response, in the case of the Douay-Rheims Bible, to try to restore the sense of Catholicity among the still remaining Catholic faithful, who no doubt were deeply confused, if not terrorized, by all the changes and the debates and the physical responses to those debates. But the thing that really struck me is that as I read this and as you listen to this, I'm going to quote, it's, it's from Pope Pius VI. Actually, it was written by his Latin secretary, Philip 
Bonamici as part of the introduction to the Bible. And here's the thing. If I didn't tell you necessarily where it was from, you might think that it was from modern times because they're dealing with some of the same issues we are dealing with now under slightly different circumstances, but the nature of human beings to thrash when it comes to their spiritual understandings. This is during the reign of Pope Pius VI. Beloved Son, Health and Apostolic Benediction at a time that a vast number of bad books, which most grossly attack the Catholic religion, are circulated even among the unlearned to the great destruction of souls, you judge exceedingly well that the faithful should be excited to the reading of the Holy Scriptures. For these are the most abundant sources which ought to be left open to every one to draw them from purity of morals and of doctrine, to eradicate the errors which are so widely disseminated in these corrupt times. This you have seasonably effected, as you declare, by publishing the sacred writings in the language of your country, suitable to every one's capacity, especially when you show and set forth that you have added explanatory notes, which being extracted from the Holy Fathers, preclude every possible danger of abuse. Thus you have not swerved, either from the laws of the Congregation of the Index, or from the Constitution published on this subject by Benedict the Fourteenth, that immortal Pope, our predecessor in the pontificate, and formerly, when we held a place near his person, our excellent master in ecclesiastical learning, circumstances which we mention as honorable to us. We therefore applaud your eminent learning, joined with your extraordinary piety, and we return you our due acknowledgment for the books you have transmitted to us, and which, when convenient, we will read over. In the meantime, as a token of our pontifical benevolence, receive our apostolical benediction, which to you, beloved son, we very infectiously impart. Given at Rome on the calends of April 1778, the fourth year of our pontificate. So, that introduction got me thinking. Do I? Do we really have it that bad? I googled worst times in human history or worst times to be alive. Certain times, events popped up like the Black Death in the 14th century that went around Europe and Asia. That was around the 1340s. This was the bubonic plague. The Mongol invasion of Europe of the 13th century popped up once or twice. There was the great bubonic plague of London in the 17th century the Thirty Years' War in Europe in the 17th century. Now, the events I've just been talking about earlier during the time of Henry VIII appears in some of the literature on Google as a bloodless revolution, although they do note in the body of their descriptions that it really wasn't bloodless. Lots of Catholics were tortured and killed, at least those who did not take the appropriate oaths. To be fair, as I said, when a Catholic, Mary, took over for a short time, she wasn't so swell either to our Protestant brethren. In fact, in that trip in 2013, and one of the places was, of course, Oxford that I went to, in this area where Broad Street meets St. Giles, there's a martyr's memorial to Protestant martyrs, including Thomas Cranmer, who was the then Archbishop of Canterbury. And these folks were burned, basically, at the stake, burned by fire because they did not believe in the real present in the transubstantiation. So 
The fact is, religious or not, no matter what the religion, there are simply evil dispositions among all of us in terms of how we respond to the other. Okay, another period that was considered particularly the worst times was World War I, which encompasses the period of another worst time, the flu epidemic of 1918, World War II, and the Holocaust. Then there's also the partition of India in 1947 et al., the Sri Lankan War from 1983 to 2000-something. Some say it was not good to be in the Soviet Union in the 1930s. My personal opinion that it hasn't been good for a lot of time before and after that. One really bad event that says it was worse than any other time that appears over and over I had never heard of, and it took place in the year 536 when there was a volcanic eruption that caused this haze, this fog that basically blocked the sun, and so without the sun, killed off a whole lot of people with an ice age. No one appears to be sure what volcano it was. Some say it was in what is now El Salvador, some say Iceland, but the reality was that this was an ice age through the world that was known then, and I guess the world that was unknown. One that popped up, was the colonization of the Americas by the Europeans because they brought disease to the native population that the native population wasn't immune to. This is, after all, ghoul, so in all things human, I suppose, the selection of a disaster caused by humans is affected by the political thought of the time in which we live. To me, I would call this a natural disaster, not something that anybody is responsible for. The Europeans couldn't help that they had a germ that they didn't even have the scientific knowledge of to identify. So that makes it, to me, more like a volcanic eruption, something that happens to us, not something we actually cause. We don't want the lesson to be that human beings should never explore, never leave their little corners of the world because they might have germs that could cause death to others. We're kind of going through that sort of thing now, aren't we? That somehow we should stay put and not expose one another to our genetic disposition to germs. Some people, by the way, are saying that this nearly two-year COVID period should join the ranks of the worst times to be alive. There are days that I would agree with that, but not because of the danger of COVID per se, but because of how it's been addressed. And the idea that somehow or another, if we deal with this particular thing, that we'll be safe for the future when safety in human existence is ultimately impossible. You know, though, that a lot of the stuff I was talking about, a lot of these events, depended on where you were. Whereas COVID and the lockdowns and the battles with regard to the lockdowns seem to be worldwide. And then there's the fact that even now, in certain places in the world, one might say this is the worst place to be and the worst place to be alive, like, say, in China or North Korea. That's pretty catastrophic. And I did not see on the lists that I ran across the time of Pol Pot in the 1970s and the genocide there, or 8 million people in Rwanda in the 1990s. And then, of course, in the life of the church, there have been enormous upheavals, long predating anything we are seeing today. When I was Googling about, I found a piece on a pope named Formosus, 
who got caught in the middle of a battle over who should be crowned king and what bishops he ordained, and after he died, he ended up being exhumed, dressed up, propped up, and tried for his perceived crimes at what was called the Cadaver Synod. He was not only excommunicated, but struck from memory. Now, that's a cancellation, and that was in the 9th century. And then there were the church battles. I don't know if all of them were to the death, but they were pretty traumatic, and some were to the death. Things like Arianism, Nestorism, Pelagianism, Montanism. I always have to look them up to remember how they are defined, and that's beyond the context of this particular uh, program. I'm put in mind of the opening paragraph from A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, the story of a man struggling and ultimately dying by the guillotine in the French Revolution, which I note also did not make the Google lists, at least the ones I saw. And here's the quote. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. As I was thinking about this, as I was reading it just now, I kept thinking to myself, how do I feel about the times in which I live? From a point of physical comfort, I would say I'm probably way ahead of all sorts of people in the past, even in the recent past, and given where I live, even more so, because we have had the gifts of abundance here. But first, I see even that changing, that even technology has become so complicated that it actually makes you do four to five steps that used to be one step like a phone call before. And then we're also seeing some slight diminishment of the abundance, very slight right now, but seeming to be aiming towards something else. A little of this being taken away, a little of that being taken away. This is not available. This is not available now. Some product. Small. Nothing big, nothing that you need to worry about immediately, but a harbinger of things to come. However, from a psychological point of view, I don't know. I think in some ways it's the worst of times. I think the age of anxiety is probably more intense because right now it's not strictly about survival, but about an existential confusion that is so mind-bending that one cannot find one's place even in thought about what is or is not true. I suppose the Dickens quote is a perfect description of the human being in his or her own times. The times are reflective of who we are, created to the good, to be good, but always ever inclined towards evil so that our days are constantly mixed between both. Perhaps one of the problems of today is that most of us seem to think that we incline more to the good than to the bad, and particularly without a need for anything so precious, so amusing as God. An attitude, a delusion that we are in fact better than all those people in the past, 
even though we are just as mixed up with the bad as any of them were in times of the past or in parts of the world. We just assume that somehow we're safer because we're more comfortable amid the muck. But the existential crises always come to each of us. The idea that we can prevent suffering and pain is an illusion of modernism, which is perhaps what is at its peak now. I guess what is true is that human life, plain and simple, remains a mishigas, a Yiddish word I've always loved. I used to hear a lot of Yiddish words when I grew up in the Bronx, and they are always perfect for any situation. A mishigas, crazy, stupid often, irresponsible, because of that inclination toward evil for which we deny any responsibility. Now, the act of redemption offers a bridge from that irresponsibility unto evil toward and to heaven to the ultimate of the best of times that only cooperation with the will of God can provide. It is always a matter of response by the individual, not the group. Each of us has to decide how we will respond to the catastrophes and evils around us. They're not going to cease, and blaming God for them isn't going to mitigate them. Announcing that God doesn't exist because of them isn't going to mitigate against them. Each of us, in the midst of the suffering and pain of the worst of times that will come to every life, have to keep an eye on the resurrection. If you don't believe in the resurrection, or at least in heaven, you aren't going to suffer any less. It just will be without purpose. It will be the Peggy Lee song. Is that all there is? Is that all there is? <sighs> Before redemption, there was no good end to this story of human catastrophe. After redemption, there is a possibility of paradise restored. I wonder sometimes who is braver? The person who says proudly and with utter certainty, I don't believe, or the person who, seeing the Michigas around us, that makes it seem there is no room for belief, still believes. The fact is that one of us is wrong. There's no middle ground. And what would you prefer that there be? Nothing after all this suffering? Or that there be something and that that something, that someone, be God? And with that solutionless episode, except of course the solution is always God, I end another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. I hope you enjoyed it. I will see you, well, you'll hear me next week. <laughs>